that's when I, I had dramatic changes in my life. Being born again, it was basically around my wife leaving me and, uh, and saying, listen, you need to shape up, you know, and, and get right with God. I said, okay. And we started to go to church again when she came back. It was, it was very Pentecostal-driven church. And the word, in a way that I hadn't received it in the past. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. And I'm delighted to say my guest today is one of the founding members of the Black Police Association and a former superintendent, Leroy Logan. November 2020 marks 20 years since the murder of Damanola Taylor. In his recently released autobiography, Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop, Leroy explains his role in that murder investigation and his attempts to build bridges between the police and the black community. Born in Islington to Jamaican parents, Leroy is a proud Londoner who served the Met for 30 years before his retirement in 2013. And today he continues to advise the police on knife crime and chair the charity Voyage Youth, which works with socially disadvantaged young people in order to combat low education achievement. So, Leroy, welcome to the show. Great being here. Thank you for the invite. Tell me a little bit about early life, life growing up in London. What are your early memories? Well, um, it was very positive, um, you know, being um, one of two children to Jamaican parents who came over in the Windrush generation in the 50s and settling in Islington, um, the more of the southern part of Islington near King's Cross, Caledonia Road. It wasn't perfect because, you know, there was a lot of uh, casual racism and, you know, things that made life very hostile, from, especially from parents in getting uh, a home or a job. But, you know, just to get in some form of livelihood, it was really difficult for them. But, you know, uh, they were always positive. They, they really uh, were loving uh, and and nurturing parents you know for me and my sister and you know we were very humble in, in amongst uh, you know our possessions we very modest to say the least but I, I, I just felt loved and secure uh, with parents who guided me and my sister throughout our informative years to make us the people that we are. And was Christian faith part of that growing up or did that come later? Oh, yeah. Um, part of setting boundaries and giving a real clarity around right and wrong was around the Bible. And my mother uh, was, you know, a very um, spiritual person. She had a real discerning eye. You know, she would be singing hymns. She'd go to church. She made sure my sister and myself went to church. Uh, I went to the local Boy Scouts brigade in Islington. So, you know, I... I had strong Christian values. Do you think there were any particular challenges for you just because of who you were as a black person living in London, as a young person, were there particular hurdles looking back? You think well, that that was quite particular to me and my situation I had to overcome that maybe um, someone else living down the street wouldn't have encountered that. Well, actually it was something a bit reversed because I spent a few years in Jamaica uh, as a child um, between 62 and 66 and 
I came back to, to London um, after that short time in Jamaica. And I felt different because I'd seen um, a country where everyone looked like me, you know, from the teachers to the doctors to the prime minister, police. So I, I really had a, a cultural immersion that I think the great majority of my peers didn't have. So that gave me a sense of optimism, hope, aspiration that I felt confident that I would make something of myself, make my parents proud. And, you know, I, I felt I'd be a, a good role model to my sister. So I always felt that despite the racism that I was going through, even in school, you know, boys will be boys. It was a boys school at the time. That's the only thing I, I acquiesced through peer pressure. I became a gooner and Arsenal sport because <laughs> that was the local team. But um, other than that, I had to speak up for myself, you know. And if someone was trying to be, how can I say, demeaning or prejudiced or racist or whatever it may be, I, you know, I, I knew that I came from a strong heritage, which I should be proud of. And, you know, sometimes you felt a bit, beleaguered or feeling sorry for yourself but my my parents would say listen get on with life it's not so much what happens to you it's how you deal with it and be proud of who you are because you've seen Jamaica you've seen where you come where you came from and um so that that helped me with dealing with racism um and not being defined by people's prejudices and, and not being derailed by those prejudices or personalities so you know it kept me focused and as a result of that i i, I felt that you know I, I was in good shape to achieve my true potential sounds like you were instilled with some very as you say very strong values did, did that open up the way for you to then consider a career in the police because i imagine someone who perhaps wasn't brought up with those values might have thought well the police isn't isn't for me um would would be massively put off by that but it sounds like the values you were instilled with of you can do anything and you know even going to jamaica and and having that kind of experience of actually no matter the color of your skin you can progress in life was was that did that sort of open the way to say actually maybe a career in the police could be for me yes it did ultimately but in the journey towards that it wasn't as definitive sure. because I, 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 when I finished my degree, I um, was set in being a research scientist or, or something to do with science or even medicine. So um, I went to work for the Royal Free Hospital in one of the most um, world-renowned medical units uh, around gastroenterology and liver disease or one form or another. And you know, I, was, I, I thought I was set, you know, that the, the medical science world was mine and, and hopefully for the taking, um, you know, in a positive way. And I, I really felt that that was my journey. And it was through um, various events which caught me by the blind side um, because at the Royal Free, we used to have sporting facilities and um, the local officers used to use... Uh, our sports centre and would be in the bar and we talked to them. I didn't realise there were police officers at the time because they're just in their sports gear. And, and it was after a matter of months, I asked them what they did, you know, because I would see them in the gym or the pool and, 
And I'd say what they did, and they told me they were police officers. And I thought, right. And I saw the human side of it before I saw the negative side, because, you know, even as a youngster in Islington, when I went to Highbury Grove, I'd get stopped and searched for my leaving band practice in the evening, you know, with my trumpet case and my satchel. I'm still getting stopped in my school uniform, you know. And then my dad used to be a long distance driver and he always used to get stopped and searched, um, you know, and traffic matters getting stopped all the time. So it wasn't a positive experience. But when they told me they were police officers, I start to reflect back not only on the negative side, but also the positive side of seeing black police officers in Jamaica. So it, it, it sort of I had that sort of quantum leap back to Jamaica. I thought, wow, you know. It is a good profession. And they started to take me on drive rounds. And I, you know, it, it was really positive because, I mean, policing in Hampstead is totally different to policing in Hackney, you know, that, because they almost police themselves, you know, it's affluent areas, very law abiding. There's, yeah, it was really positive. And I thought, wow, that's a good job. And then I was being um, assessed one of my annual appraisals, my boss, uh, Professor Roy Pounder. And he, he said, Leroy, you're doing a great job. We work well together, but I don't think you're cut out for science. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, I can't see you being a scientist for the next 20, 30 years. So I thought, oh, what do you think I should do? And he said, why don't you become a cop? I said, do I look like a racist dad to you? I mean, that's my immediate thoughts. And, <clears throat> and I thought, wow, that, that, why would you say that? And he said, well, you're an outgoing person. You're a people person. I really think this is something you could do. And um, it's set the seed of, um, well, of the calling, really. Uh, and even though I struggled with it, but in the end, um, I joined. And that went on to history making in so many ways. Sure. Is, is it true that just after you put the application in for the police, your father was assaulted by two police officers? Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, he was just going somewhere. He went to the local chip shop to get some chips because he was on his lunch break and, you know, he had parked his... It wasn't a massive Arctic lorry. It was quite a large van, really. And uh, the officers called him out of the chip shop and said, listen, you've blocked the road. So my dad said, uh, well, I, I park here all the time. And there are cars going through. And they said, no. And they're going to report. And he said, fine, fine. And, and he started to measure from the side of the van to the other side of the road. And they just laid into him. Um, and I got the call, I was at the Royal Free, and I rushed to the Whittington where he had been taken. And um, I, I couldn't believe it. How he was absolutely battered, black and blue. I, I actually walked past him because I didn't realize it was him. His face was totally contorted and swollen. And I thought, wow, why would they do that? And, and you know, I, I sensed a hate I've never sensed before, and I thank God for that. I wouldn't want to have that real negative energy. And, you know, obviously, <clears throat> I hadn't told him at the time that I'd applied. So I thought, well, forget that application. It's not going to happen. But then when I spoke to my, my fiance, Gretel, as she's now still my wife, she's still putting up with me, um, you know, she said, well, maybe that's the reason why you should join. I said, no, Gretel, that is not the answer I need. Um, and maybe my boss, I told him what happened to my dad. He said, Leroy, maybe that's the reason why you should join. <laughs> I said, what am I going to do? Just me. 
And then the third person who said it, I thought, this is getting boring. It was uh, my best mate, Lee Johnny, his mother is a, a community activist. You know, she's done a lot of work with the police. She didn't got the MBE for it. You know, this was in the early 80s. And I said to uh, Jesse, I said, listen, this is what I'm today. He said, she said, listen, that's, we need a, a more reflective police service and you need to join it. And I said, mom, that is, because I still call her mom. I said, mom, this is not what I need. <laughs> and, and, and it just continued. And, you know, I was really questioning my sanity. Why would I join an organization that's beating up my dad? Um, it's going to be a cultural change from the science world in leafy Hampstead. And I, I'm, it's going to be the biggest challenge of my life. But I pursued it because I, I just felt I needed to do that. And even my boss said, listen, I'll keep your job open for six months. If it doesn't work within that time, you can always come back. Right. Um, but, you know, I stuck with it. Yeah. And a very long and successful career in the Mets. So I guess looking back, no regrets. Um, no, no, I must, I must admit it was all for a reason when I, especially having, you know, gone through the, all the different stages in my life and how certain things could have changed it so differently. Cause I always said, if I can get through the first two years, I can get through the, the rest, the, the other 28. And I thought, you know, and there's so many stages in it. I thought this could have been so different if I hadn't stuck to that task. So I'm glad I did. So, uh, so looking back then, tell me, tell me about the kind of early years. You said it was a long time that you were a police, police officer in the Met. How did you find it in the, the first sort of months, first years? Well, I, I mean, I, my, my main issue, um, once I did decide to join is try and tell my dad. And unfortunately, the police <laughs> told my dad before I did because no they way. went to visit the, the house because they need to check where you live and all that. But I'd actually moved um, into a flat uh, with Gretel um, and, you know, because we were getting married and everything in, in 83. And wow, all of a sudden, I get this call from my dad saying, there's police officers here, so then you're going to join the Met. And he was upset, not just for the fact that he'd been beaten up by the Met, but I was leaving science to become a cop. And he right. couldn't understand that. Uh, but it was great. And ultimately, he put that aside. And again, being a great father, he, he, he saw the need to support me. And... Um, he actually took me to Hendon that, that first um, evening before I started on the 20th of June, 83. And, you know, he said, it's a tough one, this one. And I said, Dad, listen, I just don't know I'm going to do it because I know my expectation was very low around the cultural challenges because, you know, I've seen how police interact with people on the streets. And I thought, you know, and they're very miniaturistic, you know, in uniform and everything. It's, it's going to be a really tough challenge. <clears throat> and so my level of expectation was very low, actually. So the only way was up for me. Um, and my, in, in terms of the culture and having to cope with it, I wasn't expecting them to embrace me with open arms and say, oh, great you are, or whatever. And it's great to have black people in the organization. But, you know, I, I, I realized I'd have to show um, excellence in everything I do to deter any of those prejudices or personalities. And, and so it was, you know, from the first day in Hendon, I found it really alien, some of the comments. Um, it was casual racism in the canteen, the N-word, uh, the W-word, all these sort of things. And you think, come on, you're supposed to be police officers after all. I know you're a reflection of a community, but, you know, all the same, you should have a professional standard. You're 
you know, there were certain things that did uh, really upset me about how yeah. public, especially the black community, was referred to. Um, so it wasn't just racism towards me, um, even though I had the N-word written in my locker at one stage, because, you know, why would a black guy with a degree in science become a cop? You know, it wasn't your standard sort of recruit profile. And, um, you know, so that, you know, I just found that they were, they were really sort of um, quite suspicious of me. And, but I just kept on working in the area because I knew the area. I grew up there. Uh, I knew the people, the environment. And so I, I just kept going, knowing, knowing that I could be a success and I will make the most of it. And was there a particular moment in time where you thought, right, this is now my mission to make a positive change from the inside, particularly around race? Or do you think that was always there? Was that just from the moment you went in, you just thought, actually, from early on, I know kind of what I'm called to do? Yeah, I think I, the calling was around making changes within, from within. Because, you know, I remember being told you can't steer a ship from the shore. You've got to be on board, in the captain's cabin, changing the whole direction. But I was thinking, how am I going to do it from it, little old me, as it were? But even from the first um, stage at Hendon in our foundation course, I met up with other officers uh, from African, Caribbean and Asian origins. And because they were doing this recruiting drive uh, for uh, minority ethnic uh, recruits. So we kept in touch. Um, and, you know, various reasons why we started to come together to say, listen, we believe we have a voice to be heard around what's happening in the organization and what's happening outside. So we, we, we set up the Black Police Association in 94 to improve the work environment of black personnel with the intention of improving service delivery to the black community. And, and so the, the Black Police Association was formed in September 94. And, you know, it, it was during that year of, of forming it, that's when I, I had quite dramatic changes in my life uh, and being born again. Um, it was basically around uh, my wife leaving me and, uh, and saying, listen, you need to shape up and, you know, and get right with God. I said, okay, fine. And we started to go to church again when she came back. And, you know, that really, the church was, um, it, it was very Pentecostal driven church. And, you know, it, it, they explained the word in a way that I hadn't really received it in the past, you know, prior to that. And um, so that was the first thing. And then I broke my ankle uh, chasing a suspect. Um, in Hackney when I was, I was a sergeant that time. And um, so when you're laid up, you know, when you're a very active person, you're laid up feeling sorry for yourself and God sort of ministers to you. So my wife's come back to me, God's laid me up and said, right, I'm going to talk to you. Now listen, there's nowhere you can go at the moment. You just have to, you know, feel sorry for yourself or you just get up and do some stuff. And then the final stage, so this was the first half of 94, even before we set up the BPA, in September, I went to a, a church, Bloomsbury Baptist Church. Um, it's literally just around the corner from Oxford Circus. And um, I went to see Jesse Jackson, 
and speaking at the same church that Martin Luther King spoke at in 63 when he came um, to, um, I was thinking 64, I think, yeah, 64, uh, when he, he came over, um, well, I think it was his only visit to the, to the UK at the time. And he was speaking about Romans 12 and not to conform with this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I thought, wow, I, I just had that. It's still now my Rima verse. That is the one that really resonates with me. And I, it, everything just dropped into place. I thought, wow, that's what I've joined, you know? Um, and, and it's not just through the black police association, but to, to know that this is God's business. This is not a nine to five weekends off time um, commission. And, and, you know, not to over inflate it, but I felt it was like a commission, my personal commission to say, listen, what I can do to improve the organization, to make sure that we have a more cohesive society, especially working with young people. That's when I, you know, I really started to uh, see the need to work with young people to help them because you know, through policing, I saw so many young people losing their sense of hope and aspiration, sometimes their lives because of the environment they, they live in. And so, you know, that was the 94 was my life changing. Wow. Big year. So um, last we heard in, in your story of faith was that you'd had sort of quite a strong Christian upbringing. But then, as you say, by 94, what, what exactly had gone wrong, I guess, in the intervening period? Because it sounds like your wife gave you a pretty direct challenge there and said, you know, yeah. you're not right with God. We need to figure this out. Um, and it sounds like, you know, your marriage was, was on, on the brink of collapse. So w- what had gone wrong, I guess? What had happened in those intervening years of, of strong Christian upbringing to then get to a point where, what, faith wasn't there or faith had been started? Like, what, what yeah, I suppose it was in the back of my mind. You know, it wasn't um, really my heart occupying all my heart. And I was unfortunately so consumed by the, the, the occupational culture of work in policing, which... It can do if you're not very careful, you know, it, it, you become so immersed in it, you know, because it's the type of job that, you, you know, you're dealing with people's lives. You, you, you know, you want to show your experience. You want to succeed. And, know, and, and it's a very success driven organization. So, you, you, you know, after one stage, you go on to the next stage. So it's not just promotion. It's around um, your lateral development. So, you know, I was thinking of going into CID. In the end, I, I didn't go down that route because, I, as I said, my face didn't fit at the time. But, you know, I just felt, listen, I, you know, I've got to really show. So I got too absorbed in showing how good I was uh, at the expense of my family. You know, and, you know, we had three children by that stage. In fact, Miles, our youngest, was only a year old when um, Rachel decided, well, I've had enough. And she just needed my attention, get my attention, really. And, and, and I need to get God's attention. Uh, um, or God was saying to me, listen up, time to shape up. And um, yeah, it, it was really just being too focused on policing and expense to my first ministry, which is the family. I want to um, move on and, and talk about I guess an element of your story that, that a lot of people kind of have a reference point for, which of course was the, was the tragic murder of Dami Malola Taylor. This was actually slightly personal for you as well, wasn't it? You, you had a, had a family connection to him and, and then um, became quite involved in that, in that case. As I understand it, part of your 
big push really has been to make sure that the Met Police is employing a diverse range of people. And as far as I understand it, you see that really as one of the keys to dealing with things like institutional racism. If you have people like yourself who are part of the institution, who are from minorities, that will that will help, I guess. So, so do you want to explain a little bit about that, both about Damilola Taylor's involvement in it, but also that kind of broader, bigger picture of you think this is a, a good way of dealing with some of the problems that, that frankly still exist today? Well, you know, just like um, I'm a great believer of showing faith in action and how it has a practical application at all aspects of our lives. I also saw that diversity in action was really important, using people's life skills, their expertise, their culture, their languages, whatever, to in an operational setting. And I remember um, a couple of years before the tragic death of Damalola, I'd written a report. Uh, I was at Hendon at the time. I was the intake inspector and um, for the recruits. And I remember writing a report saying, we need to use uh, our, our diverse personnel in a lot more practical and operational way. And, and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they filed it. I think it ended up in someone's bin. And it was through the death of Damalola. Uh, I was chair of the Black Police Association at the time. Um, I, I was an inspector. Uh, in the Met, and I went to pay my respects to the family at a memorial service. And I remember going into that um, church, it was in an office building in the Old Kent Road, and um, I saw um, my wife's cousin, you know, Gretel's cousin was sitting there. And I, I went up to him and I said, Kanga, what are you doing here? He said, oh, did you know Damalola is family? I said, family? He said, yeah. Uh, I, and I, he explained to me that Richard, who I'd known from the 70s, when I first dated Gretel in the mid-70s, mid was Damalola's father. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, my word. And, you know, and, and I thought, wow, I mean, there's a reason for me to be here. And Because and, and, obviously I'd seen it on the TV for the first couple of weeks, what was happening. But, and there was this wall of silence and no one was speaking and they weren't finding out who had seen anything and who, had, and who was the um, suspect for, for the, the killing. Being a, while I was in that memorial service, I, I was approached by several people, members of the community, and even Commander Joe Kay, who was in charge of the investigation. And he said he would like me to join a strategic group called the Gold Group, which is a response to any critical incidents and I um, attended. And members of the community eventually were saying, well, listen, we need to have officers to help with the house to house to break down this wall of silence. And they all looked at me. <laughs> I thought, I, I just felt this sense of, I can do this. You know, similar to, you know, when I was a youngster in Jamaica, I can do this, it's a can-do thing. Uh, and being part of the police is a can-do organization, which can absorb you too much as I, described earlier but I just felt I can do this and um, I brought in uh, a cadre of black officers who you know I had handpicked to ensure that they would integrate seamlessly into the homicide investigation team and they were assigned with house to house where officers white officers had gone to and they didn't even open the door much less find out who's in there what they saw and whether they're willing to make a statement but we're literally within 
hours, I think less than two hours, I was on the radio listening to radio and two uh, officers, um, Debbie Akinlowen, uh, who's chair of the Christian Police Association in, in London, um, or she was, but I'd like to think she still is. She said, they've allowed me to go into the house and I'm speaking to the occupants and they're telling us so much. So when we had a debrief, our first debrief, it was just, thank you God. I mean, this could have gone so wrong, but the impact of faith in action and diversity in action all was mixed in showing its practical application. And um, yeah, it eventually helped to identify the suspects and, you know, the, the, the final conviction, even though there was a mistrial on, on first attempt. But, so this you know, was, so was, was this as quote unquote, as simple as, as just, if someone comes to your door who looks like you, speaks like you, I don't know, uses certain language, you're more likely to open the door and speak to them as a police officer. Is it, is it really as simple, uh, as, that. simple as that? Yeah. As simple as that. And, it, and that's what I mean. Policing is not rocket science. It's just overcomplicated by people with this performance culture and thinking that there is a, a one size fits all. But you just need to widen your mind that actually policing, you know, as it says in the Beatitudes, we're, we're peacemakers. And as a result of being sons and, uh, and daughters of God, we need to understand it's all about relationships. It's all about loving people and having that pastoral understanding. It's not about feeling colours and blue lights and sirens and kicking indoors. You know, it's around understanding how you as a public servant serve the needs of the public. And, and that, that's all it was. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. There'll be people listening to this who um, have very different perception of stop and search, mainly because they haven't experienced it. Um, and they will say, well, you know, I, I see these stories on the news. And as far as I can tell, you know, if the police suspect someone of doing something wrong, they can stop them and they can search them. What's wrong with that? Well, it's been a, a big issue from the sus law days. As I said, as a youngster myself, I used to be stopped and searched in my school uniform, um, coming from band practice in the evening. You know, and a lot of it was not based on intelligence to say, listen, we, you've been pointed out or we've seen you in possession of something that looks illegal or you've been hanging around an area where there's known drugs or whatever. It was just you, your skin colour defined the way in which you're going to get stopped and how they would speak to you because they weren't very polite. And, and I suppose that has been passed on from generation to generation. Um, even though my parents used to say, be positive, don't let those things get you down. But some people, they do get a sense of animosity and frustration and anger, and it can flare up from time to time. And I think why, what makes it more volatile is when they, you know, people feel they're being stopped, not because of information or some form of intelligence that's come to the officer's attention, but it's because of the colour of the skin. And the figures play that out 
you know, stop and search has always been an issue of you're nine to 10 times more likely to stop because you're black than you're white. You'll get, you're more likely to be tasered if you're black than you're white. You're more likely to be involved in some sort of um, um, aggressive um, form of, of handling by the officers. You're going to be charged and kept in custody more likely if you're black than you're white. So all these sort of things does create, you know, a, a sense of even extra anger. And because stop and search in itself is a very humiliating thing. I mean, I, I, I was stopped about uh, two months after me, after retiring. I was going to a youth event and I was in South East London in, in Camberwell. And, you know, I, I got stopped um, because they said I overtake a horse and cart. Well, you don't have to be driving fast <laughs> to, to, to overtake a horse and cart. But it's just the way in which the officers were speaking to me until they found out who I was and they thought, right. oh, well, thank you very much, sir, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, but there's a lot of people who, who get stopped on a regular basis and they sense, well, I haven't got a knife, I haven't got any drugs, I haven't got anything, but you're stopping me on a regular basis. Sometimes there's a marker on the car to say maybe that person is associated with drugs or weapons. And they're getting stopped all the time. And then, and now with social media, there is this constant barrage of video footage of black people not only being stopped, but handcuffed even before they even searched. Um, it doesn't seem to be intelligence-based because a lot of them are, are being released afterwards for no, um, you know, there's no reason for the original yeah. stop. So, you know, it's only one out of 10 stops actually result in something and so that is that just creates a, a, a growing frustration and anger uh, which you know um they really need to acknowledge at this most senior level and and, and do something about it you know and not it, just say nice words do something it's uh, it's been said before i think particularly around some of the the terrible stuff we see in america but i think it applies here as well that it's been said before it's not that the police have suddenly got a lot worse around these issues the difference now is that people are filming it and you know, the difference now is that we have we have evidence of of the passerby in the street getting their mobile phone out i mean again some of the awful footage we've seen in america you know we've only seen that because of the invention of the smartphone frankly and people taking initiative and thinking i'm going to try and hold my local police officers to account when they do terrible things in the past those things may well have happened it's just we never would have seen them on tv yeah i i think um it was like the rodney king um beating and that sparked off the la riots if it wasn't for the fact that someone just happened to be videoing from their house uh, i'm not sure if it was a mobile phone because you know this was a sort of mid-90s and uh, mid to late 90s. You know, it, it, it really was a defining moment. But you've got so many defining moments now. And I, but for me, the George Floyd killing was so painful to watch because I shared the blue surge like that officer. I, I was a public servant, as he should be. And he showed just some cold, calculated action of such a sustainable way that you think that's inhuman to, to, to do that. You, could, you shouldn't even do that to an animal, much less a human. I mean, if it was a dog laying there, I'm telling you, there's, there'd be some really upset people, you know. Um, with, he would never do that to, to a dog. You know? and, and why a human being? And it, it's because of the way in which they see uh, black men. Because a lot of black men, um, in, in, in certain white people's eyes, it's a fearful 
um, image. You know, they do fear black men. Um, I remember patrolling in plain clothes in Hackney and in Islington and, and, and some um, white members of the public would cross the road or hold their bag a bit closer or something because they've had this image of a black man walking down the road must be trouble. And police officers, unfortunately, are, are, are a lot of the way, uh, think a lot of the same way rather. Um, and I think it's, you know, these things are learned. It's not like you, you've got a, a, a prejudiced DNA or, you know, a racist uh, chromosome. You, you, you've got to have learned that. And I think it's around having proper conversations around how this thing can um, end up. And I think George Floyd has been a real learning opportunity for so many of us right across the world. And I'd like to think this movement will continue. And it's not going to be just a moment of saying, oh, that's really bad. But it's going to be a, a movement of conversations and really being proactive to, to not only say, well, I'm not racist. Well, you've got to prove it and prove it to yourself and others. And also, how do you challenge other people who may be and, how, and, and don't be passive? Because I think um, silence is complicity. After the death of Stephen Lawrence and the Met was um, declared institutionally racist, when that news came, was that, you know, what was your reaction to that? Did you think, well, well, of course, you know, I have personal experience of this, or, or was that still a bit of a shock? Well, ha having been uh, one of the three BPA members who gave evidence at the McPherson inquiry to say that the police were institutionally racist and gave evidence of internal um, dynamics around recruitment, retention, progression, because you know, even though we get people into the organization, but, you know, officers are four to five times more likely to be leaving the organization if they're black than they're white, uh, more than likely to be subject to discipline than their white colleagues, um, finding that, you know, they're not going through the ranks as they should, etc. And then at the same time, um, around stop and search and, and all the other indicators that I, I spoke about earlier. So, we gave evidence and say that is an institutionally racist organization. Um, so I wasn't shocked that it came um, out in, in the report. In fact, I remember when we gave evidence, you could see the panelists, Lord McPherson and the other panelists were really sort of so positive because they, you know, and I heard afterwards, they were so happy that someone had actually given them a real lens into the organization. It was clear that austerity had a massive impact around the, 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 the McPherson recommendations. So from 99 to 2009, 2010, we were seeing some real improvements internally, externally. But after that, when austerity kicked in in that 2010 till now, there's been that disconnect. So we've actually gone backwards. And I think that's why so many people say, well, it's not useful now, because I think they have to recognize that they've actually gone backwards. So all the improvements in the first 10 years since the McPherson recommendations were um, issued in February 99, has been eroded by the last 10 years wow. through austerity. And, and dare I say the B word, Brexit, you know, that seems to have emboldened a lot of people in the public because hate crime has gone through the roof. Um, and as I said, police officers are a reflection of the public and you can see how it plays out on, on, on the streets on a regular basis. So I, I think, um, you know, we, we, we need to recognise that we are at a defining moment and I think that's why the Black Lives Matter and, and, and 
you know, the, the, the movement of change through George Floyd, we really need to make it count. And we've gone backwards 20 years, like a pre-McPherson era, which I don't want my grandchildren to go through, like my children went through, or even my generation went through. It's very obvious, hopefully you should be obvious to anyone, that of course you can be a police officer and you can be a black man, and there's not a contradiction there. But at the same time, you know, going back to what you were saying about um, the video of the George Floyd death and, and the emotions that brought up, have there been times where those, those two parts of your identity have felt conflicted in some way? As, as yes, of course I'm proud to be black. Yes, of course I'm proud to be a police officer. But actually what I hear from others or what I see in the media or, or what I look at the George Floyd death, actually these two elements of my identity feel like they're intentional, feel like they're contradicting in some way. Has that been a, a struggle for you at all? No, because um, when I, I had to go through a lot of inventory, especially after my dad got assaulted, and I thought, why would I still join? And it, it was clear to me from that first instance, um, before I even stepped foot on police uh, premises, before I became uh, a recruit, I, I, I had to say clearly, I'm a black man who happens to be a cop. What that does, that makes sure that you're going into the organization to integrate and not to assimilate the cultural norms and values. So you integrate with your beliefs and values to work as a team, to work successfully, to carry out the policies and procedures of the Met and to improve it if it's not fit for purpose. So I never felt any sort of contradiction as a black man or as a Christian. Um, because for me, key part of policing is that pastoral element, that, that real empathy and advocacy for people, not just seeing people as potential prisoners, but maybe a potential patient or a, a, a potential um, need for help in a way that it might not be, all right, fill out this form or I'll deploy assets. It might be, they just need your time. So for me, it's always been a seamless process. It's, there's never been a contradiction. I, I've always felt as a black man, I'm representing my community um, and I want to make sure that my presence is felt in a positive way. I want to bring people with me and work together. Mm -hmm. and, and I still have that sense of uh, public service even now, because I think once sure. it's in your veins, you never lose it. You write in the book, though, that, that some people have seen you as a lone wolf or a maverick. Why is that? Because <laughs> I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, um, I suppose when you're, you, you've got a clarity of who you are, what you're there to do. And, even, you know, I'm not into misplaced loyalties. Uh, I never have been. Um, I've got a, a, a group of school friends um, I went to Highgrove School with. I can count on one hand. You know, um, I, it's not, I'm not a sort of person that I have to have loads of friends, you know. Uh, for me, having, especially on social media, that, that doesn't define me. I know some people get defined by how many likes you get and how many followers you have. For me, it doesn't matter. If I've got one follower, it doesn't bother me. If I've got a thousand, great. But it doesn't define me. So um, I've always been, uh, I think I just got it from my dad. My, my dad always said, be a lone wolf. You know, you've got to think for yourself. Don't get caught up in peer pressure. Or, you know, he used to talk about social seaweed, you know, people who just sort of go with the direction of the tide, you know, and they just flop from one side to another. 
don't get into this mass hysteria. Think for yourself, especially when the heat is on, mm. you know, and, and be a cool head when other people are losing theirs. But the, the publicity that's attached to your book says that you've made some powerful allies, but also some enemies along the way. So who are the enemies? Well, I mean, anyone who sees me put my head above the parapet to speak out around institutional racism and the fact that, you know, I have had to name and shame from time to time. I'll, I'll challenge home secretaries, prime ministers, commissioners, um, mayors. I'll do it in a positive, constructive, evidence-based way. If I see something's wrong, I just cannot sit back. Sure. Well, I, I noticed it. I noticed on Twitter just the other day you were talking about Dame Cresta Dick, the Mets commissioner. Uh, she's shelved the Stephen Lawrence case, and you said on Twitter she doesn't care. Is that is that really true or fair? Well, how it comes across to me. I mean, I know Cres twenty years when she came back to the Met as a commander, and she, in fact, she was doing a lot of work with the Lawrence family. Um, and working with a, a deputy assistant commissioner at the time, John Greaves. So they, you know, did a lot around leading it, but, but it's just the way in which she's put certain things across around, well, you don't have to tell anyone you're going to reduce the number of officers or make it just a review process. You don't have to tell people, you know, you can do that if you want to. Um, and the timing I thought was terrible, you know, during the Black Lives Matter movement and everything. Why would you want to do that now? You know, maybe in a year's time. Well, it sounds and like in that case, she does care. It's just been poorly communicated. I, I, I think she doesn't really understand, care about the, all the communities and the impact. You know, and, and unfortunately, Krez has, you know, still got, um, especially minority communities, still see her with a certain amount of suspicion because of the John Charles Menendez case, the Stockwell shooting um, in... Um, 2005 so you know it, it it is something that she needs to recognize that people have got long memories and then certain things she'll say again uh, i remember she was being interviewed by channel four a couple of weeks ago and they quoted that tweet you just highlighted and you could see that she wasn't happy but she was not all she, she, she even said well trust and confidence in the black communities it's good, but it's not. Uh, it's the lowest it's been for, for decades, especially in black communities where they're over-policed and underprotected. And for, for her to say that trust and confidence is good is either she's in denial or she's telling a lie. And, and for me, all those things don't show that care that she needs to show. So if, if you were if you were in her position, given all you've just said about trust being an all time low, what are the sort other you know a handful of things you could say you could do that tomorrow and that would start improvements? You know what would be the sorts of things you'd recommend to say? Look, trust is really low between the police and black people. This is you know you know it goes without saying. If that continues, that leads to some very very dangerous situations for society. It's really important we get good communication going again. What were the sorts of things you could, you could sort of recommend that could be done overnight that might begin to then turn the tide on that? Well, I think that, that sort of change in our narrative would be really good. Um, I wouldn't be making big headlines about, um, you know, the war on drugs and the war on knives because, you know, there are some big issues around 
all of those things, you know, people don't just, again, uh, wake up saying I'm going to stab someone. It's the environment. It's the trauma they're going through. Recognize that so many uh, people, especially young people, are suffering from adverse childhood experiences, toxic stress, wider community um, stress. So, you know, we need to understand that we're not going to rest our way out of the problem. We also need to let the, the, the reassignment of assets. So police are not necessarily called to every single call to do with, you know, someone is suicidal or, or someone is uh, suffering from a drug overdose or, um, you know, exclusions from schools. We don't need to be called to those things. Um, and, and, and I would build back our um, safer neighbour, safer schools officers to work with schools to reduce the exclusions. Because once you exclude a child, you might as well write the date when they're going to the prison system. So we, you need to re-establish back those connections with the community. And I think it's also around, you know, officers who are seen to be road cops. They've got to show that they will sanction them. You know, if they're not going to respond positively through a development plan, they've got to be sanctioned. We cannot allow road cops to carry out and feel they're untouchable and unaccountable and the organisation is doing nothing about it or is seen to be doing nothing about it. And I think, you know, as I said, don't see institutional racism as a burden, see it as an aspiration. Mm. We just say, okay, we've seen the recommendations, we're going to run with those recommendations because what gets measured gets done. We're going to make sure we have independent oversight so that we're not seen as being self-serving. And, you know, for me, it's around showing that strong leadership and being present. You know, one of the best things I saw from a senior officer was a, a guy called Tim Godwin. He, he was a deputy commissioner at one stage. But when he was a deputy assistant commissioner, he went into Brixton and he had this town hall type meeting. And it was the most amazing thing I saw. You know, he took the hard questions. He, he took the tempers and the anger and you know people getting really frustrated with him but he sat there and took it and he he came out successful i would like to see the commissioner doing those sort of things you know say listen i know you might have a perception of me but i'm willing to sit here and have some conversation with some real tough people to say listen we might not agree to we might have to agree to disagree but let's least at least have the conversation yes oh. Just, just zooming out a little bit here, what is it about the police specifically that seems to have attracted so many issues, both in the UK and the US, to do with race? Because, of course, I want to say racism exists in all parts of society. I'm sure you know, there are massive issues of racism in my industry and in the media and other places. Nevertheless, it does seem like the, the police has, um, for whatever reason, an, an awful lot of problems in this, in this area. Is there something about, I don't know, the, the kinds of the kinds of people who go into the police um, that it attracts a particularly, I don't know, aggressive kind of personality trait. What is it? How do we explain that both in the US and the UK, it's, it's the police where racism seems to be such a huge issue. Well, as to I mean, why that might be the case. Know why, why the police was set up in the first place. You know, it was there to protect the haves from, from the have nots. Um, and, you know, it does attract uh, people with quite strong views around, you know, the them and us. Right. Um, what it should be a we, because as publics, that's why they changed the name from police force to police service to, right. show, to try and break down that mindset. Because as I said, the strong occupational culture does give that sort of, it's a them and us, and we'll deal with them if they 
getting our way. You know, that sort of thing. And I think it's also the fact that those, those type of quite intolerant people do not celebrate diversity. So they don't even deal with uh, minority groups within their ranks well. So don't expect them to do it well with members of the public. And, and I, th I think there needs to be, you, you know, and, but people are very good at joining the organization and, and seem to be very objective. But I saw it as an intake manager um, in, in the 90s when I was in charge of recruits. Um, and I saw them transform from this um, objective person within two or three weeks. They've got the swagger, they've got all the, 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 the narrative, you know, the, the, the slangs and everything. And you think they're like old sweats. I've only got three weeks in the job, not 13, you know, uh, 13 years or whatever. It's quite amazing how quick that, that change was. I wonder if there's something about something about having power as well. If you suddenly put in a uniform, you know, especially if you're quite young, is there an element of the power going to your head a little bit? And I suppose, you know, a faith, faith element here would be quite helpful in saying, you know, what is your role in life? Is it, is it yeah, to exactly. be a powerful person or is it to be a servant? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, it, the control element is a key bit because a, a lot of people like having that sense of control and power. And when you put that toxic mix with racism you know your or prejudice and the power can uh, lead to racism and of course it can have it on a large scale where the organization not dealing with it and that's where you get institutional racism when you get these small things this micro aggressions into larger aggressions and it's been allowed to manifest and proliferate throughout the, the organization so the control and power piece and some people can't cope with it because, you know, once they leave the organization, they don't have that, that power. They think they're lost. Well, you know, for someone as a Christian, I know God is the power in my life. So whether I'm in the police service or not, I have that sense of empowerment. And, you know, in him we trust. Well, as I say, the book is, uh, is out now. It's called Closing Ranks. But also just to say um, that your story is going to be featuring on the BBC this December in an episode of Steve McQueen's Small Axe. It's a six-part series. And is it right that John Boyega is playing you, Leroy? Yes, he is. Yes. If someone said to me four years ago when I started this um, project with them that, you know, I'd have John playing me, I was all serious. Um, <laughs> even though I met John many years earlier, um, when he was just starting his career um, uh, with, with the film Attack on the Block. Um, so, but so yeah, it, it, it's really amazing. And, you know, I just give God thanks for letting that be at a time when, you know, my labour of love of the book is coming out and at the same time as the film. And, you know, I'm just hoping it, it will help to have those conversations I speak about mm -hmm. and let us all be more active citizens. Yeah. John Boyega, as you say, I mean, he's he's really done some huge films recently. Star Wars is probably the last film I, I saw him in. Yeah, um, yeah. Have you been involved at all in the kind of crafting of episodes? Did you get to visit the set or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I did all that. I was very active in, in, in drawing up the script. Amazing. Uh, script writers uh, went to the set. It wasn't the most luxurious set in the world. You know, it was in sunny Wolverhampton because <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to re recreate London in the 80s and okay. London has been transformed over the last 30 years so certain parts of Wolverhampton does sort of reflect that um, sort of scene and um, you know uh, John not only adopted the uniform but also some of my own personal dress sense 
um, from the eighties. So my, 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 one of my closest friends from school, Charlie Allen, he's a tailor, used to make my clothes for me. Um, and so they had to go, I referred them back to him uh, so that John could be um, well sort of uh, suited and booted uh, by Charlie Allen. So yeah, it was, um, it was great just seeing that and being involved in it. And it's a, it's a real sort of family affair. You know, I've got so many friends um, involved yeah, it, it, I can't wait until it comes out, it, you know, and I, I'd like to think it's going to be a good end to the year because 2020 has been very challenging so far. Well, they do say the book is always better than the film. So why not get a hold of the book now? It's called Closing Ranks by Leroy Logan and then look out for the six-part BBC series coming to, uh, is it, I don't know if it's BBC One or BBC Two, but it's coming in BBC December. One. BBC One. Fantastic. BBC One this December. It's called Small Acts. Leroy, thank you so much for talking. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate your time. No, no, I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, and thanks to your listeners for tuning in. As Leroy says, thank you so much for joining us on The Profile. It's been great to have your company. Do hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'll be back same time, same place next week. See you then.